Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the show. This is Missing the Point with Miles David, and I'm your host. Thank you for tuning back in. If this is your first time listening, I do welcome you. If you're a returning listener, I appreciate it. Regardless if you're returning or a first-time listener, make sure you keep up with the podcast and all the things that we are trying to do on social media um, across all platforms. It can be found at Missing Point Pod. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse. Just to make sure you are in the loop with what is going down on the podcast. And if you are a pretty consistent listener and tuned into the last episode i did leave you guys in saying that the next episode i do was going to be a little bit different and i am here to fulfill that promise (laughs) today's episode is going to be the launch of a series that i've had brewing in the back of my mind for a while now and drum roll please (laughs) that was terrible the name of this series i've had in my mind for a while is called hindsight Yes, hindsight. It's a word that I found myself saying a lot when I first started recording the podcast, and I thought that I should make use of it. So the concept of hindsight is I actually take a player that either is synonymous with tennis, influential in tennis, or just an athlete that I feel like deserves a spotlight for a day or an episode, I should say, and talk about them, have conversations, bring people onto the podcast to have conversations. And these people are fans of this player and this particular player to kind of start this series off. Her name is Maria Sharapova. <laughs> I'll let, I'll let you guys gasp in awe at that because I know there are a couple of, of Serena hardcore fans who gristle at the name or mention of Sharapova's name <laughs> and I do apologize if Sharapova is not your cup of tea however in the grand scheme of things I do think that her name is definitely worthy enough of this idea that I've been building out and it's taken uh, time for me to get ready to put everything together and release it for you guys so I'm proud of it and I hope you guys enjoy it but before we get into the audio that I'm going to play for you guys I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a rundown of what to expect so so I've actually interviewed and had conversations with two different people Johnny Chin and also Mac McLinn These two guys are first timers on the podcast and I greatly appreciate them taking the time out to speak with me and talk about Maria Sharapova's career. And we just chop it up about all the things that I felt like were important topics to touch on. Me and Johnny specifically try to talk about the transformation that Sharapova's career took during the years of 2012 and 2015. Um, or during the years of 2012 and 2015, I should say. And then also me and Mac took the opportunity to talk about the not so great part of uh, Sharapova's career that ultimately led to her retirement and the accusations of performance enhancing drugs and doping and all that stuff that, you know, people uh, talk about in regards to Sharapova. So if you don't know who Maria Sharapova is, I'm going to give you a touch of a backstory. And I'm also going to link a YouTube playlist. If you guys don't know me, know that I enjoy making YouTube playlists. And I just it overall enjoy finding good content on YouTube and falling down a YouTube hole. It's like one of my 
<laughs> it's one of my pastimes. I'm also going to link a playlist that I made for you guys and for the listeners, especially who may not be so familiar with Sharapova and would like to, to be or listen along to some of the things I'm referencing in the podcast. That link is going to be for you. I hope you enjoy it. But again, for those who may not know Sharapova or Sharapova's story, I'm going to do just a quick introduction um, to get us up until the point where I can introduce the conversations with Johnny and then Mac and then... And that'll be the episode. So just a very brief general overview and kind of bio, if you will, of Maria Sharapova. For those who may not know, Maria Sharapova is a Russian professional tennis player or was a Russian professional tennis player. She is now retired and she retired in 2020. She was born on April 19th, 1987. Um, She's been a United States resident since 1994. She's also competed on the Women's Tennis Association Tour since 2001. She has been ranked world number one in singles, by the WTA on five separate occasions for a total of 21 weeks. And she is one of only 10 women and the only Russian to hold the career Grand Slam. She is also an Olympic silver medalist, having earned her silver medal at the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. She became the world number one for the very first time in her career on August 22nd, 2005, at only the age of 18, and last held the ranking for the fifth time for four weeks on June 11, 2012 to July 8, 2012. She has 35 single titles and five Grand Slam titles to her credit, two at the French Open and one each at the Australian Open, Wimbledon and US Open, thus giving her the career Grand Slam. And she also additionally won the year ending WTA finals in her debut in 2004. Although she did have a bit of an injury prone career, Sharapova did achieve good longevity in the sport of tennis. She won a title each year from 2003 until 2015. A lot of tennis commentators, analysts, and pundits have called her one of the best competitors tennis has ever seen. In March 2016, though, Sharapova revealed that she had failed a drug test at the 2016 Australian Open on January 26, 2016. She tested positive for meldonium, a substance that had been banned effectively on January 1st by the World Anti-Doping Agency. And on June 8th of that same year, she was suspended from playing tennis for two years by the International Tennis Federation. In October of 2016, though, the suspension was reduced to 15 months starting from the date of the failed test and she returned to the WTA tour on April 26, 2017 in a tournament in Stuttgart and that's where I'll leave you guys. <laughs> the rest of the podcast will be the conversations that I hold with Johnny and Mac and then I'll be back at the end to wrap it all up and see if you guys liked it. <laughs> Put a bow on it. So I hope you guys enjoy the audio It's been my pleasure to edit it and present it to you guys. So here's the episode. Enjoy. Another one for the highlight reel. Okay. So here on the podcast, we have Mr. Johnny, Mr. Johnny Chin, right? Yep. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. 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 And Mr. Johnny is somebody that I have definitely gotten to know through Brian. Brian is another friend to the show from the very beginning. And Brian only gives me the best of the best when it comes to tennis pundits. (laughs) So when it comes to an episode about Sharapova, I definitely trust your opinion and your feedback and your statistical knowledge. (laughs) Um, So welcome to the show, Johnny. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's uh, definitely the first tennis podcast I've ever done. This is your wait. This is your first tennis podcast, really? Yeah, you're the first. Right with here. all with with the wealth of knowledge you have about the WTA, no one's ever asked you to be like, hey. No, but you're also the first to call me a tennis pundit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I've I've seen that I've seen that word thrown around by other tennis commentators. So now it's just like in my back pocket of things yeah. to say. <laughs> I do feel like I have all this record in my brain and knowledge, just like you and Brian, about all of the tennis history and records and scores and everything and draws. So I'm excited to finally let that all out and have fun. Yeah, it, it'll it'll definitely be fun. I mean, that's the whole point of the podcast. That's the whole point of talking about all of this. Tennis is fun. You've played you play tennis, right? I did uh, since I was a kid. Uh, sometimes competitive, but mostly just for fun. That's mostly what I do do i'm i'm kind of starting to play almost three times a week now my body is like getting used to it and i'm like okay well if i'm playing three times a week that's kind of what i was doing in high school so maybe i can like start adding things to my game now because <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. i want to eventually i want to get to like four or five i'm at like a solid three five now but I, I, eventually i want to get to four or five so now I'm, now I'm just like thinking and like watching youtube videos and stuff anyway 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 <laughs> it's not about me it was about it's about your intro <laughs> just follow uh sharapova and get really good at your returns and i think you'll be okay oh my returns are good they're just not sharapova ish if there if there's one thing i could take from her game it would definitely be her return to serve i think you just need to scream a little louder <laughs> i like that <laughs> Sometimes I really do think that I'm the person that people are looking at on court, like, will he shut up? So I, I, I'm i not loud, but I'd like, <laughs> you hear me playing tennis. Yeah, okay. All right, you're already there. <laughs> you know what I'm playing tennis, and it's not like a quiet thing, but I'm also not Sharapovich, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, let's dig into 2012 to 2015, starting with 2012. I think, so this is why I say this is like a, a really purple patch. I think a purple patch insinuates that something's good. I think that's what that means, but I'm, so I'm going to roll with it. Let's go with it. <laughs> <laughs> this was a real purple patch in her career because one, a couple of different things happened in 2012. She got back to world number one after dealing with the shoulder injuries that, that started to pop up in 2007, 2008, and really a dip in the rankings that I believe, and I probably should have fact-checked, she was outside of the top 100 at, at a different point, either between 2009 and 2011, was when she like started to make her rise back in 2011, but in 2009, 2010, somewhere in between there, because she didn't really play most of a consistent schedule, her, her ranking really dropped. So for her to get back to world number one in 2012 took a lot of effort and digging in, especially on the surface that she she kind of digged in on, which is Clay, because coming into the public knowing her and even herself admitting that she was kind of foreign to Clay and didn't really know what to do on it or, you know, using the, the famous line she used, uh, you know, moving like a cow on ice or whatnot. It's funny that 2012 really serves as a marker of like her game improving on clay of all places you know yeah yeah and i've been digging into the stats uh in the records because that's my analysis of tennis is always like the numbers like and the numbers i just like all that stuff i like it i like it the win records and 
it looks like like before 2012, she I don't think she won a single title on clay before 2011. She, she, yeah, before 2011, she won a small one. So when I think about Sharapova on clay, I think about the time I saw her play on clay in Amelia Island. Remember the green clay? She mm-hmm. won a tournament on green clay in 2008. <laughs> and then she won a small one in Strasbourg, I want to say, in 2010. Okay. But then the 2011 Rome titles was like, oh, wait. It was kind of like an awakening for her, too, and for the rest of the tennis world. Like, oh, wait, she really can play on clay. And she got to the semifinals of the French Open in 2011. So, yeah. like, 2012 was just more momentum yeah. off of, like, the small bits that she had kind of built in her in her career, for sure. Yeah. But and you're I- right. I was studying 2012, um, and I would actually argue that was probably overall the best year of her career uh, because she reached back number one. She reached nine finals out of 14 tournaments, but out of nine finals, she's only won three that year, and those were all on clay. Yeah. Yeah. Everything else, the Miami Open, Indian Wells, she was in the final, but she kept losing to Azarenka and Serena. Mm -hmm. But every time she was on clay, she won the final. She won the final in Rome right before the French Open against Nali. And then she won the French Open in 2012 to complete the calendar year Grand Slam at the French Open at Roland Garros that year. I really, when I, when I look at the trajectory of like 2011, 2012, I think the spark happened in 2011 that like, oh, I can play on clay. And when she got back on clay in 2012, Let's, let's let's go back a little bit. 2012 yeah. was, yeah, if I remember correctly, she goes in 2012 season playing at the Australian Open, like with no warm-up. She didn't play a warm-up tournament and she got to the final. And that was only her first, that was her second final outside of the 2011 fi- final at Wimbledon where she got killed by Petra Kvitova. The 2012 Australian Open final was, you know, her second final on the comeback trail. Yeah. Even though she got killed, I think it did a lot for her confidence to like not play any warm-ups in that tournament and still get all the way to the finals. What do you think changed before and after that shoulder injury and surgery? What changed? I think she really started putting emphasis on her return game. And I realized that when she played Kvitova in 2012 at the Australian Open, because like the, the reason she struggled to kind of get back to top 10 form after the shoulder injury was because the shoulder injury kind of plagued her serve. You know, she, she tinkered with her motion and she just kind of lost the feeling on it a lot. And I believe in 2011 going in 2012, she really was just like, okay, well, this part of my game may not ever get to where it was, but I still have room for improvement in the return game. And I remember the match against Kvitova in 2012, I, I think Kvitova might have had a chance to be world number one had she won that match. Um, and that was their rematch of the 2011 Wimbledon final that Sharapova had lost in straight sets. So that match was really when I realized that she had kind of taken up things a notch in her mentality. And like, I kind of placed her back in the mix to win slam seriously again. And I noticed her, like the emphasis on the return, like she would still throw in a double fault here or there, but the return was just like, coming at Kvitova's feet before she could even finish it a couple of times. And I was like, this is like, she, she would do that in her career, but not like consistently, consistently. And that's when I was like, okay, this must be a tactic. And for the most part, she kind of kept that tactic for the rest of her career, pretty much like being taking huge cuts on returns 
and being aggressive on serve, but really not panicking when she was broken because she knew her return game was good. And I imagine what changed was in her, the first part of her career, in her teenage years, mm-hmm. she was known for her serve, right? That for was sure. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot flatter and faster in that sense. But from my understanding, that shoulder, it was a shoulder injury, mm-hmm. uh, surgery. And ever since then, you could tell her serve motion was completely different. And it had, it had to require more topspin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a lot higher. It was slower because of that. And so it wasn't her dominant force anymore. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine her and her coach and team said, what else can we make you world-class at? And that's when they decided, let's figure out how to be the best returner in the game, which helps with play. And, and moving, because I think she got better at, like, lateral movement, too, probably when she was dealing with the shoulder. Because, you know, like, your shoulder doesn't mean your knees don't work, you know? So she probably was doing a lot of lateral drills, or at least in my mind, that would make sense as to, like, why she got better on clay, you know? Because <laughs> before then, she really never put emphasis on movement, and I'm guessing the shoulder injury, with her doing fitness and trying to maintain, she probably just did more groundwork, and that turned into better lateral movement, and that transitioned into clay. Because, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here watching the 2014 final, and she's still, like, when you think about, like, a traditional clay court mover, you definitely don't think about Sharapova, do you? No, never. She still, for all intents and purposes, is a cow on ice in a little bit. Like, she's not as clumsy, (laughs) but she still can make it look awkward. But I think it's about what the weight of her shot does to an opponent and like the length that she keeps on a shot that for some way makes itself appropriate in like the situations of long battles on clay, you know? I don't think we appreciate or recognize how talented and exceptional that is to realize that you are really bad at something, (laughs) go back and adjust and practice and train for that. And then not only become good, but become number one at it Mm -hmm. in any sport that is absolutely insane that's the same thing as saying Nadal halfway through his career decides that he has an injury he comes back and then he only wins Wimbledon from then on Mm. or it's the same thing as saying Federer for all his career wins Wimbledon and then has an injury and decides to come back and only wins clay from that point forward that is a huge transition and to be good at it too yeah and and to like have the awareness to see yourself doing that and then execute it yeah for sure that win at the 2012 French Open kind of sealed her fate in the history book for sure. So I think it paid off. Like all of the work you just mentioned and the the talent that it took to to kind of make that change, it paid off because now she's pretty much guaranteed a spot in the history books because she joined a list of people that's very small that have won at least one major in their every, you know, at least every major in their career. Yeah. I do think though, like when I was looking at the 2012 season, she was getting killed by Azarenka every time they met. <laughs> like, Azarenka was definitely not afraid of that matchup. And I don't think Sharapova was necessarily afraid of their matchup, but she didn't understand, like, why 2012 was, the, was like, why 2012 Azarenka was any different. Because they had met a couple times or, or so before, I believe. And, like, their rivalry took up a notch in 2012. So I think she was, like, befuddled a little bit by Azarenka. However, when she got to the Stuttgart tournament that she coincidentally ends up winning three three years in a row, she beat Azarenka in that final. And I think that confidence brings her to the Rome title that I mentioned earlier in 2012. And she gets to the French Open, and she really has a really, really, really good draw. 
She never drops a set except to fourth round. Yeah, Zakapalova at the time. Yeah, which was she's a she's a feisty like road runner. <laughs> Did you do you remember all these or is this you just refreshing on the stats? I looked at some of this like a couple of days ago. <laughs> but like I also know I also like remember a lot of her 2012 run because a couple things happened and I was this is what I was getting to the 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 stars aligned because if you remember that 2012 French Open a lot of people thought Serena was going to win it because she had come in winning Charleston on clay and Madrid on the blue clay that was weird and you know she was coming in like hot um, and she lost first round, the first, the first and only time she's ever lost first round. I remember, I remember where I was when she lost, when I got that ESPN notification, I was like, we lost to Rosano in the first round. So when that happened, my like alert system went up for the rest of that tournament. And I kind of was like, well, the door is open. Cause she was the next best player to, you know, cause she, Serena had won two tournaments leading into the French and Sharapova had won two tournaments. And the the rest of the draw just kind of opened up to her, especially to get Sarah Irani in the final, who had never been to a Grand Slam final and had a first serve that sometimes wouldn't oh, crack God. 80 miles per hour. You know, she couldn't have asked for a better matchup, especially considering, like what we just said, her return being huge, she's getting <laughs> 60 miles per hour served, you know? Yeah. So the, the stars really aligned for sure. And on the topic of Serena, too, I I can see why a lot of people say they don't like Sharapova because they love Serena and they're a number one Serena fan. But to me, Sharapova is the best thing to happen to Serena. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Every Serena fan should love Sharapova <laughs> because of how easy it was for Serena to make it all the way through. And she barely loses sets. I'm looking at the record now. She probably lost a total of like a few sets. Three or four like, in their career. Maybe yeah. five. Maybe six. I would tops. love Sharapova. Yeah. Yeah, she yeah, should be a huge fan of Sharapova because it gave Serena a win every single time. I'm not going to lie. In 2021, I would not mind seeing Sharapova's name near Serena in a draw. Just because, like you said, that name in their rivalry, even though people can say it's not a rivalry because of the head-to-head, and Sharapova not winning in over a decade or, some, or something close like that, it made her focus so much so that, like, the rest of the tournament, the rest of the tournament, it was just like, you just got to stay at that level because you've already reached it to beat this woman who you can't stand because she beat you in Wimbledon that one time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it made them both better players. I think Sharapova getting beat so much definitely even poured more into that well, at least... Because at that Serena was good on clay, but the the general consensus around Serena on clay is that it it was the surface that was a little bit easier to beat her on. So I think that even poured into why Sharapova put more emphasis on clay from this point in her career moving forward. Because she gave herself a fighting chance on clay. I mean, even in 2013, we can go to 2013. She makes to the French Open final again, which <laughs> just reiterates that she had kind of found her lucky ticket or something. She won the Stuttgart tournament again in 2013. And I believe that was her only 2013. She won Stuttgart. I don't remember what else she won, like as a title period in 2013 for whatever reason. Do you have a pulled up? uh, Indian Wells as well. (laughs) Oh yes. Indian Wells. She didn't, she did win Indian Wells in 2013. 
that was that wasn't a bad season. She ended up getting to like the WTA finals and everything in 2013, right? Yeah, it was just a shortened season, I believe. Yeah, I I think she may have did she have like an injury patch or something like that? I think briefly towards the end she didn't play the US Open. Gotcha. Yep, it was it was something like that. But I mean she she at least peaked her form for 2013 to get back to the final and it took a performance even though like that 2013 final it's weird because I think it's one of their best matchups, but the scoreline doesn't show it. But it also shows just how intense their matchup is because Serena could have easily lost one of those sets with the way Sharapova was kind of like finding her groove in the clay. But she wouldn't allow herself to because she just wouldn't. Yeah. It, I don't think Serena would. If Serena ever lost a set against Sharapova, she really knuckled down and won the next one. Every time. At that level, it's just such thin margins. A lot of how you win is due to your mental game. Mm-hmm. She just always had that edge. We, we kind of skipped past some of 2012. But at 2013 final, that was after Sharapova really got embarrassed in the 2012 Olymp- Olympic game. So at that point, <laughs> at that point, some mental scarring had been in her head. Like, <sighs> and then, the you know, I'm, I'm kind of. Uh, balancing dates here, but then the 2012 Olympic final happens and she pretty much gets embarrassed and she doesn't beat Serena ever again in 2012. And in 2013, at the Miami final, she finally takes a set off of Serena only to get bagels in the final set. <laughs> so she just, at that at, at the 2013 French Open, she probably was just like, although she was playing well, like you were saying, that small, like that small mental edge, something in the back of her head probably was just like, you know, odds are I probably don't win this match, even if I'm playing well, based off of how she's completely crushed me for the past how many, ever many so years. Yeah, it's definitely a mental game. She's got permanent scar tissue in her brain somewhere. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't, especially when people are constantly bringing it up, you know? Yeah. I mean, but Sharapova doesn't lean back off of it. I mean, Serena Serena and the rivalry or unrivalry made it all the way to her <laughs> memoir and her book, so hey. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm 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 sure she has a love hate relationship with Serena as well. Should we? Do you want to talk about their twenty uh, her 2014 season? For sure, I think that was a good. That's why I say this is like a purple patch. 2014 was another great season for her. In 2014, she won Stuttgart for the third time in a row. Uh huh. She won Madrid. Right, back to back. Back to back. I don't think she played Rome, or if she did, she pulled out. She her. did. She lost to Anna Ivanovic early on. In the, she lost to Ivanovic? In the sec- second or third round. Oh, really? I didn't know she had a loss coming into the French Open. But that French Open in 2014, as I'm looking up in my TV at the final, maybe, maybe this isn't a good time. That might have been a time where she really depended on Meldonia. <laughs> oh, you think? Just be, not depended on, but it's hard to like again. We're, we're we're looking at somebody's career with the benefit of hindsight. She got through so many three set matches that tournament. I wouldn't like take it away from her, but like if if you are if you've been banned for performing enhancing drugs and then you look at a tournament where you you could have lost four times in a row, but you didn't, it's kind of like okay, well maybe maybe that was the edge you got from taking so and so drug, you know. No, but it wasn't, and that's where I'm probably different than most. It was fully legal. Every oh no, player, for sure. I think it was it was a clerical error that messed her up. Yeah, but she did she, nothing wrong. She didn't benefit more than other people that were taking it. 
see, that's where it's cloudy because I do think she had found like a loophole. I think she knew that what she was taking was helping her, but she also knew it was legal, right? So she wasn't doing anything wrong, but it was a major clerical error for her team and for her not to realize that the thing that she's been taking for so long is now a banned substance. If if it was legal and not banned, doesn't that mean other people were also doing it? And yeah, it, exactly. It puts the it puts the doubt there, which is why I really don't hang it over her head. But it does make me question things sometimes. Like it just it just puts the it puts the cloud of doubt. But I would never I would never say like you know she deserves her tournaments taken away or anything like that. You know. Um, but it, it does. It, it's it's just it's just interesting when I look at yeah. the amount of three sets, the three setters she had to play, and how long they were. Because I I believe the 2014 French Open Women's Final, she she got another first time finalist mm-hmm. in Simona Halep. You know, Simona Halep has gone on to have a pretty legendary career in her own right. Even though she's not my favorite to watch. Sorry. She's still peaking. She still <laughs> got years ahead. She still got who? Years years ahead of her. Oh, yeah. Simona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, but but, she, but at that point, she gets like a, a fresh Simona Halep, but not not the experience she has now, especially in Grand Slam finals. And I still believe that match has a record for like longest women's final. Either the set was long or the entire match, something like that. But it's mm-hmm. it's it's definitely rewatchable, and you can tell that, especially towards the end of it, that there is a second gear that Sharapova can tap into that mm-hmm. a lot of other players can't. So yeah, for yeah. that, like that is respectable, you know. Yeah, I would say that French Open 2014 is probably my favorite Sharapova Grand Slam win mm-hmm. because from the fourth round quarterfinal semi and the finals were all three setters and fourth quarter and semi were all come from behind wins. Mm-hmm. She was close to down and out against Stozer in the fourth round, against Muguruza in the quarters. She was also down against Eugenie Bouchard and it was just... It's so ra- I like it when a player can continue to come back despite how far they're down over and over and over again. Just like Serena did the very next year at the 2015 French Open. Right. It was interesting that they both traded French Opens every year from like 2012 mm-hmm. to 2015. That's rare. I don't mm-hmm. remember the last time that's happened in the last decade. Again, and, and people say they don't have a rivalry. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, it doesn't I- happen anymore. It's so deep now that you just mm-hmm. don't get that level of consistency. I would bet that she would put, like, the 2014 French Open title, especially, like, that's the only major she won twice, and it being the one on clay that people just kind of laughed at her at one point and said she really wouldn't be a factor on. That She would put that one and then probably, like, 2004 Wimbledon. Because that, mm-hmm. I would imagine. I, I would agree. I would imagine that those are pretty, like, it was the, it was the first and last one, you know? Yeah, you're saying she would prior, she would prefer her second French Open title over her first because it meant more to her. I think it meant more for her at the twenty fourteen at the twenty fourteen French Open because like what you mentioned earlier, the three setters she had to go through yeah. and proving that twenty twelve wasn't a fluke. Yeah. You know? But also in twenty fourteen <laughs> the draw was the draw was favorable for her in some ways, but she didn't have to go through Serena because Serena lost second round. But like you mentioned earlier, the three setters she she beat, she didn't she didn't beat flukes. Like I mean, Bouchard was probably playing the best. <laughs> Bouchard was probably playing the best tennis of her life, and she beat Stozer in the quarterfinal. Or yeah, or, had previously won uh, a Grand Slam. Yeah, Stozer in the fourth round. 
Stozer's a great plan. Yeah, I, I love Stozer games. I, I believe Stozer actually, if I could rewrite history, I would give Stozer a French Open title or two. I, I really like enjoying I enjoy watching her own play for sure. But Sharapova beat Stozer in the fourth round, Yankovic in the quarters? No, Muguruza. Muguruza in the quarters. I forgot. And see, that's how the draw opened up for her because that could have been Serena. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it may have looked different. But, I'm, you know, I, again, I, I still think she probably enjoys that one or looks back on that with the fondest memories of, of, her, of her Grand Slams. And it's the last one that she won. Would you have th- would you have thought at 2014 like if you can go back to 2014 would you be like yeah that's going to be Sharapova's last Grand Slam? Not at all. At the way she was peaking and reaching all these finals, even in 2015 she reached the Australian Open final, and then in clay she got upset by Shafarova, who was playing on fire, I believe, leading up to it. Yep. I mean, she got she didn't. 2015 was not a bad season for her. I remember because she started off the year winning in Brisbane. She got a win over Annie Ivanovich. And their rivalry was always interesting for me to watch, too. Remember the whole uh, checker blood pressure thing? No, I don't remember that. You don't remember their match in Cincinnati? It's iconic. What happened? <laughs> I'll, have to send you the, I'll send you the highlights on YouTube. I might, I might post them in the podcast description. But <laughs> they, I, I believe this was a semifinal of Cincinnati, the hardcourt warm-up for the U.S. Open, and it was Sharapova versus Ivanovich. And Ivanovich... 2014, 2014. Yes, it was 2014. Ivanovich had called for a medical timeout randomly. And like one of the excuses she used, not excuses, but one of the reasons that she said she needed medical help was because of her blood pressure or something like that, or something related to that. Right. The look you just made was probably what Sheriff Hover was feeling. So I think they got back on court, and I think either the very next game or a game following that, Sharapova breaks, and like I think she breaks off of double fault. And in frustration, she yells to the chump to the chair umpire and like points at her wrist or her arm. Check her blood pressure. Check her blood pressure. Like being sarcastic, um, and it's it's made its round on YouTube or whatever. It's really funny. I'm surprised you haven't seen that. Well, People always uh, reference it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I might have just forgotten. Yeah. That's okay. I, 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 for whatever reason, I have a vast WTA bank of information in my head. <laughs> I can tell. You and Brian both. Yeah. <laughs> and then they meet again. I don't know if they had met bef- any time between that, but they met again at the top of the 2015 season at Brisbane. And that was a really, really close match. Sharapova, Sharapova lost the first set in a tie break. And I don't think she had won a title off of Clay since that one. Um so she kind of like reestablished herself that, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, you guys thought I was a clay specialist or whatever for a, for a second, but I'm still able to kind of import this game of big returning and, you know, clean, powerful, like, or really deep um, ground strokes, you know, because that's still hard to beat. Then she goes into the 2015 Australian Open. I don't quite remember. She reaches the final. No, I remember. She remember she reaches the final, but I, don't, I think she was the number two seed. I think she was. Yeah, I think she was opposite uh, Serena. Yep, she was on the opposite half of the draw. And I remember this match very well. I remember, like, posting, like, the preview photo Australia had posted on my Instagram because for whatever reason, it felt like, and the the match showed it, it was another another match that Sharapova could have won or at least took taken a set off of, but didn't because of the mental scarring of that that head-to-head. Because Sharapova was playing well going into that match, and she came to play in that final, especially considering 
the matches she had lost to Cher, um, to Serena on that very same court multiple times in her career, you know? She had kind of gotten she – she had almost beat her in one time in 2005, and in 2007 she got pretty embarrassed. So yeah. I think she really wanted to get that one. Imagine if I had her next to me or if I was interviewing her, I would ask her, is that one that you felt like kind of got away, you know? Because she's never really got into a Grand Slam final – and like had a I don't correct me if I'm wrong I don't think she's ever like had a lead slip in a Grand Slam final she either plays well and like handles it pretty comfortably and upsets the, the player or just beats them or um, the only the only testy Grand Slam final she had was that she won was the 2004 French Open but I think if she could switch one I think she would do the 2015 Australian Open because imagine if she wins that sets. yeah the other wins were all straight set wins yep Pretty dominantly too. Pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty handedly. But imagine if she wins the 2015 Australian Open against Serena. Yeah, she might yeah. just, she might just drop her, her her racket and retire after that. I mean, hey, you guys saw I can beat her again, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, beat her, and I beat her in Australia and got another Grand Slam. She yeah. probably would have liked that story. Now, Sharapova definitely either had set point in that uh, second set set, uh, the second set tiebreak or was dangerously close to it, because that match definitely could have gone three sets. And I don't know, Serena had already gone three sets a bunch of different times in that 2015 Australian Open. Who knows how that would have happened if Sharapova gets one of the set points that she had in that second set. And I, and that's probably their, even though it's not three sets, and people like to, you know, people like to say the three set matches are always like the the ones that are the the most memorable ones, but I think that's probably their best quality match, that 2015 Australian Open final. Mm. That's, mm. Some of, that's some of Sharapova's best returning, too, because although, you know, I said earlier that she had put emphasis on returning, the only person that kind of had that figured out was Serena. Serena was just like, yeah, you're all right, but you're not getting, like, my serve is still going to pass you quicker than you can return it. In 20, the 2015 Australian Open final, Serena hit a bunch of aces, but then Sharapova hit a bunch of really, really good returns too. So that was that was why that was such high quality for sure for me at least. Um, I was gonna ask this earlier, but hypothetically, let's mm -hmm. assume in 2016 the uh, Meldonium was never banned. She <laughs> continues her career; everything's fine. Um, how many more Grand Slams do you think she would have won from 2016 till today? This is remembering, right? In 2017, 18, Serena was gone. Mm, so you had, mm. Like, you have Muguruza pop up, you have Kerber, you have Ostapenko. It was up for grabs. Even Wozniacki won a freaking slam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that, but now that you put it, you put it to me, she probably would have won at least two. I do think, though, she played a riskier game, the long, like the deeper she got into her, her, career because I think some of the movement lacked so I do think on a bad day when like her shots were missing somebody could have probably upset her or like a backboard player like a Wozniacki probably mm -hmm. could have you know got her out of the tournament but I do think if you take the whole Meldonium thing out of the out of the equation and you look at what happened with Serena getting pregnant she probably wins maybe one more French and maybe another Australian maybe mm -hmm. yeah, she, never really, she never really she never really peaked at the u.s open early 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 on yeah yeah and i think wimbledon for some reason maybe she would want maybe she would have won wimbledon again but her her footing on wimbledon kind of got unsure 
the longer she went into her career. I know she got to the semifinals of Wimbledon in 2015, which you know is not is is a really good run, but I don't know. I don't. I I can't. I can see more Australia French Open for her more than I can see Wimbledon U.S. Open. I can see that. I think that's pretty consistent with a lot of top players. They start off the year strong. Mm-hmm. I think more consistency in the earlier tournaments and U.S. Open. I feel like, with the exception of Serena, on both the men's and the women's side, there's just a lot of first-time winners and random players that pop into uh, their first Grand Slam final at the U.S. Open. Hmm. Like Andrescu's first time was there. Osaka's first time was there. Sloan Stevens, Madison Keys' first time was there. Pliskova's first time was there. Kerber. Well, that wasn't her first final, but that was her first U.S. Open. And then who else? I was thinking about someone else. Panetta and Vinci. Uh, uh, yeah, you, yeah, you got a, you got a solid point. I, I, that's that's and maybe the maybe the style. Yeah, the, the style of play that she has is so high risk and probably required so much of her body that by the time August came around, she was just like you know, whew, it's, it's, she ran out of meldonium in her body <laughs> and no more. <laughs> Final question for me. What do you think is a chance she'll do a little come out of retirement like Kleister's did, does? That's a zero. Less than 10%. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see her. I mean, she's done all pretty much she kind of set out to do, plus more. So, you know, even though there are some sad bits and questionable bits and, like, definitely some sour marks on her resume in certain in certain regards – she also has some really, really awesome ones too. You know, I think she finds peace with that. And if she finds peace with it, I don't think, I don't think um, she'll be returning to the tour anytime soon. And I think she just got engaged too. So maybe she's starting oh, a family soon. Who? No idea who. Yeah, <laughs> like no idea. No idea who, but I'm pretty sure she just got engaged to a guy. So good for Sharapova. Yeah. Before I get too far into Sharapova, I have to introduce you to the podcast audience because this is your first time on the show. So just do, and I didn't, I didn't prep you for this, so that's my bad. <laughs> but just do a, a quick, a quick, just you know, name, number, social security number, you know, things where people can find you, that kind of stuff. You know, you know, you know. <laughs> hey, what's up, everybody? This is uh, Mac McLean uh, from Chicago, Illinois. Thirty-two years of age. I start playing tennis. Uh, be 20 years next year, uh, so it's kind of been like self-taught, and then when my parents kind of got me some coaches, then it's just been kind of just me ever since. Uh, I love the sport a lot. Uh, you guys can find me on Instagram, uh, MAC underscore Antonio88. Uh, I think that's about it. It'll be in the podcast description, don't worry. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so... Where would you rank Sharapova amongst kind of your favorite slash most influential tennis players? Ooh, all time or just? Let's do all time because we're reflecting on her career and I think it's appropriate to do all time because it's not like I don't foresee her doing a comeback. So I think, you know, we've at a, we're at a point where we can look back at her career in hindsight, no pun intended, but yeah, yeah all time. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and this is just my opinion. She is in top five. Just women or men and women? Uh, just women. Uh, for the women, definitely top five. When did you become like aware of her? Or when did you realize like, oh, because I know, you know, 
meeting you through Instagram and stuff and meeting you through starting my, my podcast platform and stuff. Mm -hmm. We obviously mm -hmm. have an affinity for Serena and Venus, and I'm sure they're influential as to why we played the sport. But when did you realize that, oh, I like Sharapova too? Because, you know, we've talked. A lot of people yeah. usually don't like <laughs> have both of those columns checked as far as being a yeah. Williams Sisters fan and a Sharapova yeah. fan. When did you realize you had both columns checked? Yeah, it's almost like synonymous. You can't be a William Sister fan and Maria Sharapova fan. And, and if I you are, if you are, people yeah. online will just be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, for me, I think it started, I think I credit uh, Mary Carrillo. She came with this expression, uh, big babe tennis. So like in the early 2000s, 2005, 2010 era, you had Venus and Serena, you had Linda Mintieva, you had Lindsay Davenport, you had Kim Kleiss. Uh, uh, Azarenka was just coming on tour, you had Maria Sharapova. All these players had this big style of game. I'm just like, oh, wow. Okay, I see what the Williams sisters are doing, but you cannot negate these resurgence of Russians that are just really just has a stranglehold on the tennis women's side for a while. But mm -hmm. I didn't bring you on here to talk about the beginning of her career. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are here in this particular We have time. an agenda. We have an agenda. We have an agenda. <laughs> we we definitely are going to tackle some of the more uncomfortable parts of her career or like I, like I like to call it the scandalous years from mm -hmm. 2016 until the, the, the time she called time on her career and, and retired. So just to start the conversation off, do you remember the, the small like social buzz around Sharapova calling her press conference in 2016, right before Indian Wells? Do you remember that? Oh, absolutely. And there were just like so many speculations. What is this about? Is she about to retire? Is she pregnant? What could it possibly be? I didn't know. I, I remember where I, like I was pretty new to the hashtag tennis Twitter scene in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, there were some people like uh, other black guys that had had loved tennis and I saw how much they loved Serena, obviously, so I was attracted to that. But I also knew that I didn't hate Sharapova back then. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, she wasn't far removed from her last Grand Slam title. She was consistently in the mix, even though she was getting killed by Sharap. I mean, by Serena at that point. She was still in the mix mm -hmm. and was a tough out. So when she, like, announced that there was going to be some press conference at that point, even though she wasn't super old, especially, you know, and I keep using the word hindsight. That's why I titled this series that but <laughs> In hindsight, people are playing longer. She wasn't necessarily old, but her her results had taken a dip, you know? It had mm -hmm. not, not significant, but they had taken a dip. So, of course, retirement was just, like, in the air. Maybe, like you said, pregnancy, something. But I, I definitely didn't think she was about to open up her mouth and say that she had tested positive for a banned substance and was then yeah. going to be suspended from the tour. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that crossed my mind at all. So when it happened, it was kind of just like a remember where you were when this happened kind of moment. If you are 
of the tennis nerd like you and I are. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was definitely gag worthy. Uh, <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> because some, someone of her caliber, like, no, 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 no way. And just to like dig into the press conference a little bit, she almost, in a way, I, I appreciated her for doing that and it not like the situation not outing her and her trying to get ahead of it. Because the way she described it, I may catch flag for this. I don't care. I'm doing the episode anyway. It made sense, right? Like, it made sense that there was something that she had been doing or a, a, let, let's, instead, of, instead of making it a performance-enhancing drug, insert vitamin, insert daily vitamin. You had been doing something for 10 years. So I can imagine to a certain, a certain degree, your threshold of monitoring whether it's legal or not dips after so long of doing something. So it makes sense that she was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place between like, I've been taking this for 10 years and all of a sudden at the top of the year, this substance I've been taking is now banned by the, what did they call it? The WADA, the World Association? Yeah. World Association uh, Drug. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, and those were the official people who kind of like helped to put the ban on her and the International Tennis Federation, of course, kind of double teamed her. <laughs> but where she kind of put her foot in her mouth was, and this is why like when I have the debate about Sharapova, I think about this. She gave us a very direct timeline of when she started it and mm-hmm. when it was like, when it was banned. And if you just look at her results on paper <laughs> yeah. from when she started it, you can see that there was like a, there was an uptick of performance. Cause she, she herself said like during the summer slash fall of 2006 was when she was administered, administered the drug based off some health issues she was having. That's how she put it. Mm-hmm. If you look at the summer fall of 2006, there's a large chunk of her career where she was the most successful. So mm-hmm. like, that's not lost on me, but I also, give her a I give her her credit for not breaking the rule because there, yeah. her taking that in 2006 wasn't against anybody's rule her taking mm-hmm. it from 2006 to the beginning of 2016 was not against anybody's rule so it's hard for me to discredit everything she's done which a lot of people were very quick to do and say that oh you know her grand slam should be removed her number one ranking should yep. be revoked how do you feel like how when you when you were digesting the news back then in 2016, how did you feel about like the consequences that she were, she was facing? Did you feel like they were fair or did you feel like people were kind of gunning at her because she was the figurehead of women's tennis? Hmm. It's, I, I can take it two ways with, with the situation. I think because it was Maria Sharapova, a lot of the tennis world inside and out Oh, we're going to make an example out of her because this is a top player who has done this. So we definitely need to uh, really just give it to her with the suspension or whatever else she's going to come about that. I thought it was a little, I might catch some flags for this. It was a, a little definitely harsh. And I think the fact that she got in front of it and wanted to just inform everyone, inform everyone about this drug, I thought was like, okay, I see her getting in front of it. She's trying to do the right thing. I don't, and then the kind of back and forth, like, okay, it was legal, then it wasn't. It was like, okay, that's when I kind of showed her some grace. Like, oh, well, 
I've been doing this thing for so many years. It just was, it was just would seem as though she just had like a mental. Everything is fine. Lab. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't take that from her. I don't, I don't, I actually, don't, I don't take that from her. I mean, I, I just as a human being, I always yeah. err on the side of the fact that you try doing something for a decade and then somebody mm-hmm. comes along and tells you, Oh, you know, you're not supposed to be doing that. It's going to yeah. take, a little bit of adjustment. You can insert anything. It doesn't even have to be something drug related. Brushing your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't you don't need to brush your teeth three times a day. It's only have one. you seen those TikTok videos where sometimes it comes up and you're like, wait, I've been doing this wrong my whole life. Yes. Or yes. like I've been doing it this way my whole life. And now you're coming along at 30 years of age or something, you're telling me, oh, this is how you actually do it. It's gonna yeah. be something you're just like, oh wait, let me adjust. Now I will say she She's always kept like she I think she said this in the press a couple of times. She's never been a person that has a huge entourage, but she has a huge mm-hmm. following. And even though she doesn't have like a huge entourage, when you look at her camp at tennis matches, it's not like 17 people deep. It's more like four or five or Three. six. Yeah. 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 <laughs> five, six tops. Um, she does have way too many resources to her to her liking for something like that to slip through the cracks, especially something of that nature where the consequence should have been or could have been suspension. I would imagine once you get to a caliber of being the highest paid athlete, like, I mean, I'm I'm not 100% sure if she was the highest paid athlete of women athletes or just the highest paid tennis athlete. I'm I'm leaning towards she was for a couple of years, just the highest paid female athlete of of all sports you can't have that kind of label and then tell me you don't have people looking at your eyes and your T's to make sure they're crossed business wise and Mm -hmm. making sure that a substance that you regularly take is legal is something that somebody in your team should be doing. So I I mean, I don't think she's ever like going on record to say that, Oh, somebody got fired from that incident. But I know if it were me, I would take a good look at my team because now like tennis is very individual. I'm the one taking individual blame for this. When mm-hmm. the doctor prescribed it, there was somebody that was making sure that I was scheduling drug tests. Like sh- the whole reason that they got to that ugly carpet in LA to make that <laughs> announcement was because she failed the drug test, which lets me know that so- like somebody in her team has to be a part of organizing her to get to said drug test. So somewhere along those lines, something was missed. A, a ball was dropped and she caught the whole brunt of it when I don't think all of those things. It's kind of like administrative things. Something fell through, right. the, through, the, through, the, through the cracks with that, which I feel like was unfortunate. And I think that's why the powers that be in tennis were able to go from the original two-year ban down to the 15 months because it yeah. was just like, <laughs> just looking at it arbitrarily and on paper, she was doing something that wasn't against the rules for so long. And mm-hmm. In a flip of a switch, flip of a year, all of a sudden she is, and then no one gives her a heads up, and yeah. she fails the drug test, which is a which is like a you know a, a sport no no. You know, I have a question before we move mm-hmm. on. Like this is gonna segue into the effects of said said drug. Do you think she was taking it because of a medical necessity slash reason, or do you think she had found a loophole? and was taking a drug that was actually helping her performance. And I brought up what I said earlier about the 2006 
timeline because yeah. there's an uptick in performance. Like she had, re- she obviously had gotten to, you know, the Wimbledon final beat Serena in 04. 05 was like mm-hmm. the year of her getting stopped at semifinals. Like she didn't have a bad year, but 06 was like where she, like summer fall of 06, where she ramped it up, yeah. became another Grand Slam champion and basically cemented herself as like, I'm Maria Sharapova. That's that was like little black dress of the U.S. Open era. Yep. She went on to win a whole bunch of tournaments after the U.S. Open and and basically got herself back to number one, right around the time Justine Inna was going through her divorce or something like that. And I, I believe mm-hmm. she was the number one seed at the Australian Open. So for all intents and purposes, her trajectory was going up and up and up. So add the fact that she kept taking that for ten years and she added more Grand Slams. Obviously, like there was some injury woes in between all of that but she was always able to overcome those and stay in the mix even when her ranking would drop even when she would kind of have some questionable losses she for most of her career she stayed in the mix so do you think that the drug was actually helping her accomplish some of that some of those things or do you think it was just something that kind of in her mind had a placebo effect okay so here's my take on that uh because that's a very good question I put the the mental side of Maria and Serena the exact same. They both have the same exact mental capacity when it comes to performing and doing things off the court. I think Maria, this was definitely medical. It had nothing to do with for me, nothing more to enhance anything at all. I, I I get the impression just watching her for, I don't know how many years I've watched her. She don't need that. She is a top player. And I think Serena, I remember a, a, they asked Serena about what do you think about Maria Sharapova? And she says, I don't need to take any um, uh, sports enhancement drugs. I, I, I Even when I, they give me an aspirin, I'm usually checking to make sure it's on the list. I think he with does, those two players, do that. <laughs> yes, I think those two players think the exact same way when it comes to stuff like that. I don't need any enhancements. My gifts or my gifts. I don't need any enhancements about that. So when then when it comes to like medicine or drugs, it's, it happens to be medical. I'm going to go with it's a medical thing, not an enhancement. And I think with the uptick to what you brought up. I, I credit the, the uh, surgery that she had. That the, her shoulder surgeries are um, she's managed them, hmm. but I think that's my take on why there was some dips, some ebbs and flows with with her whole um, performance there. But I'm going to definitely say it was for medical reasons and not just for performance enhancement of her game i mean just to give her credit where it's due i i I think she still is the one and only player that has had a couple of different major shoulder surgeries to her dominant Mm -hmm. arm and still been able to be a top ranked player and win grand slams you know because she went i believe she had the first major surgery somewhere around 2008 like mm-hmm. after she won the Australian Open, had that great season. I remember there was a match she played at the Rogers Cup in Toronto. I think she played against uh, Domachowska, 
I'm, I'm, I might be butchering okay. her name, but there was a moment where she, like the, the picture is kind of etched in my, in my head where like the physical, the physical trainer is like trying to stretch her arm out and stuff. And I think she pulled, she did pull out of the U S open in 2008. And that's when she announced that she was having that surgery and she didn't come back onto the tour until 2009 French open. So from like, you know, summer 2008 until spring 2009, she was battling and rehabbing that soldier injury. And that was like the first major one. And I do believe some somewhere along the line between then and like somewhere in 2013, 2014 or something, she had another one. So she was still able to win grand slams. I mean, she has the, yeah. the career uh, grand slam, you know, plus another French open in her closet, you know? Yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's hard for me to just completely throw her under the bus, even even as a Serena fan. But let, let's get into let's get into. I, I saw your notes about the wild card uh, controversy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she she gets the fifteen month suspension in two thousand sixteen. Yeah. She comes back in Stuttgart in twenty seventeen, and before that, that whole fifteen month span, she was basically the brunt of most of tennis media's jokes or just a punchline or just something to talk about because she went from being highest paid athlete, a figurehead of tennis to uh-huh. this example of how you should not cheat in tennis when there was, there, it was more to it than just cheating. Right. And then right. factor in the fact that she was this figurehead of tennis. She has won all four grand slams. Every She's a gl- globally known athlete. She comes back to the tour, and I think her reputation on tour basically bit her in the butt on top on top of the fact that she was involved in that doping controversy. She had always yeah. said she was never one of the girls to really be friendly with the other girls because everybody was her adversary in her competition, which I, to a certain degree, I understand. I do wish she was a little bit more friendly because that maybe would have helped on the back end with her, you know, retirement send off. But I also Mm -hmm. can't blame her for keeping that one track mind of mentality of like, I'm here to win. If I'm stepping on the court, we're not friends. And it's going to be hard for me to turn that off if I see you in the locker room. So she gets to 2017 and I think she starts the process of like, okay, I'm going to prove to you guys that I don't need this drug. And in part of trying to prove that, she was a little bit dependent on the system who was also making fun of her, you know? She was she was dependent on them. And I don't think she was in love with the fact that her ranking had dropped and the possibility of playing qualifying was on the table. I don't think she was in love with that. And I can't blame her for being in love with that because that's not from which she came. Like she might've played qualifying for a year or two in her career until she had her major yeah. breakthrough. And then from then it was just the sky's the limit. So where do you, where do you fall on, on the thought that she should have received wild cards or she should not have received wild cards based off of her, her resume basically. But like we know in hindsight that she did receive them, but what, what was your yeah. thinking about the debate while it was happening? Like should Sheriff Hover receive wild cards into the French open? Cause I remember, I think the French open was the first one to give her a, a, a no. I don't think she had, I don't think she played at the 2017 French Open. I don't think she did. Oh, who won 2017 French? Ostapenko. <laughs> Ostapenko. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, that whole wild card fiasco, it was actually an interesting argument. 
Uh, I would personally say I'm more side, I'm more on the business side. And I remember a, a few tournament directors actually talked about this. They're like, I have Maria Sharapova trying to make a comeback from the suspension that she has. She puts butts in seats. I am not going to let Maria Sharapova go through three or four rounds in qualifying with maybe that she doesn't win. Maybe, she, I, I don't know, then she pulls out the first round because she can't, because she's sore or whatever. As a businessman, I would say, no, I'm going to give her that wild card because she's going to put butts in my tournament. Agreed. I, I mean, feel. you, she, and then she puts butts in the seats for a couple of different reasons. Like you said, not only is she Maria Sharapova, this tennis champion, she's also having this like media haven around her name to mm -hmm. see whether or not she still has it, whether or not the the girls are going to be receptive to her. Just people are going to want to see what happens next in her career. So I can't blame from like, from what you said, from a tournament perspective, yeah, yeah. a business perspective, what she has accomplished in her career, the name itself deserves a wild card. That's why I would lean to. I understand it's, I understand it's controversial. It wouldn't be necessarily like a something that I, a decision I would make in my sleep, but if I'm a tournament organizer and I know that I want to keep this tournament on the schedule year to year to year and have it yeah. create revenue, Sharapova is somebody that allows me the option to do that. It just, it just mm -hmm. is what it is. Even if she comes with a whole bunch of backlash of people saying, oh, I won't support your tournament because Sharapova's playing, I don't support doping. I mean, <laughs> that's fair and obviously you're right, but there are going to be more people that just want to see the athlete perform and just have an eye on the stadium for when she comes back, you know? Yes, yeah. That's how I saw it. And I mean, I think it worked out fairly well because mm -hmm. her first competition her first grand slam competition back was the u.s open if memory serves me correctly she did not play in the french open she did not play at the at wimbledon but she did play at the u.s open and she had a really all things considered she had a great run to the fourth round especially considering who she had to beat in simona Halep, which is i don't know if i would um fare it as a classic match but it is a match that you can go back and watch for a dramatic value because that she was a was, first round match, right? That was a first round match. Simona okay. Halep was, I believe, number two in the world at that time. She was kind of mm -hmm. in the hunt for world number one. She hadn't quite got there. Halep had just come off the French Open defeat to Ostapenko. So she was dealing yeah. with that. Um, so it was it, it was a star studded studded night. It was under the lights. So like it's a I'm pretty sure if I go to YouTube right now, the match has easily either close to or over a million views. So like, mm -hmm. a, again, a business standpoint, Sharapova in your tournament gets the views, it gets the clicks, it gets butts in the seats. And yeah. she got pushed back from that. She got pushed back from people like from tennis journalists and her peers. I don't know if you remember, I'm pretty sure Wozniacki was a part of that club, especially oh, yeah. when, it came, when it came time to specifically going back to 2017 U.S. Open court scheduling. She what was the yes. act? Yep, it was, a, it was an issue because Sharapova was consistently getting center court. The, the center court matches and Sharap, I think yeah. Wozniacki was like, her, her, her angle was, well, here I am coming back from injury too. I'm still, you know, ranked in the top 10 somewhere. 
Why am I getting put on an outside court? But here you are, this person that's coming back from a doping suspension. You're giving her the lane for all eyes to be on her. And Sarah Povo's response was like, I don't care if you put me out on the, on the, on the court on the back parking lot, I'm going to play. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not quite sure where Wozniacki is because I'm pretty sure Wozniacki had, had lost when she made that comment. So it, 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 I, I it was, so it was always going to come off a little bitter <laughs> always, <laughs> but she had a point. I'm not going to say she didn't have a point because what kind of message does that send? If it, if, if the powers that be in tennis or the people that are making the schedule can clearly see, Hey, this person has went through a 15 month doping suspension and we, they come back and they're the person we're marketing in the ESPN media packages for this first round match, second round match, third round match, and so on. Do you, do you think she had a point? I think Wozniacki had a point, but I also know, I, I believe she should know why Maria Sharapova is on those big stadium courts. And you, when you were saying that, it actually got me to thinking, has Maria Sharapova ever been off of a center court or a, a main court at the U.S. Open in particular? As far as I know, like, again, going back from 05, 06, Sharapova has always played on a television court. It may not have been, like, yeah. the main, like, it may not have been Arthur Ashe, Philippe Chartier, or Rod Laver, or, you know, center court mm -hmm. at Wimbledon, but it was going to be a court that television cameras could get to and give angles yeah. to. Like, that's just, just, just what it is, you know? The bottom line, Maria Sharapova is bankable and marketable. <laughs> you, you can't hate her for that <laughs> i mean i give people i give people leeway for disliking her for that because the timing of when of whence sharapova came around was right around the time that like i was saying earlier serena and venus had taken a tiny step back from tennis and people were people were complaining or there was there was a narrative that they weren't taking tennis as seriously which right. added to the fuel of them being like kind of cocky because we all know the story of how they came onto the scene with Richard kind of saying that they're going to be the best and they were <laughs> they were they were beating the people that were dominating the sport the Hingis the Davenports the Graf Kornikova all of those things they were beating them consistently and lifting the, the major trophies so when Sharapova came around it was almost like the tennis world embraced her in spite of Serena and Venus. And I've always, I've always kind of got that, that, that feeling like they don't like, they love her because she plays great tennis. But at the timing of when she kind of came to everybody's forefront, it was like, ah, there's this white blonde savior of tennis. Who's going to take it seriously and knock down the Williams sisters from this pedestal. They think they're on. And that kind of is why yeah. the endorsements started to flow in because they felt they were getting something of greater value. But if you look at it, did they really? <laughs> did they really? Did they really get something of greater value? Yes, she is extremely marketable. Yes, she's mm -hmm. had a, a great career and should be in the Hall of Fame just off tennis achieve achievements alone. But there are people who have outachieved her. So did they yeah. really get this savior? Do you think they did? Like, do you think the tennis, the, the powers that be in tennis or the people that are, that are holding the meetings to have these sponsorship deals, do you think they invested in something good? Or do you think it was like, yeah? 
I still say yes, even though she hasn't really uh, the tennis resume as a Venus or Serena. I think she way exceeds them in markability. Uh, I think when it comes to... And that's a societal thing, by the way, too. It's not just... I think that's a societal thing. Yeah. Oh, true. True. Uh, I'm just looking at all the endorsement deals that Maria has. Even when... Even when the news came out that she, you know, of course, had the suspension, there wasn't a huge damning of her in her actions. It was more of a cautious separation. And I don't believe that if we replace Sharapova with Serena or Venus in a doping situation, that they would, like, their sponsors would have delicately separated as they did with Sharapova. It would have been canceled the, I, I, it, it would have been a, it would have been a harsh cancellation almost like we knew this is why you guys were so good like we knew we knew something was going on we knew mm-hmm. those problems were big for a, a reason like and yeah. it, it, it didn't it didn't play out that that way with sheriff Hover. i mean she was st- even though nike took a step back and issued some statements she was still sure wearing nike up until she retired so yep. don't know if that would have happened the same way to Serena or Venus, and we know why it's a societal thing, it's not just a tennis thing, but mm-hmm. it, it's still something that it adds into the conversation of Sharapova, basically. And I'm uh, some people take that nugget of it and base their core reasoning for not liking her in that, especially True. if they are Venus or Serena fans. And I can't blame them for doing that, but if you look at it just a little bit more objectively, what do you think is going to happen? She is a tall, long, relative, like conventionally attractive woman with blonde hair that plays tennis. It was yeah, the, yeah. the she was basically created to excel in the sport, right? And like, she I mean, can't. And and does she not supposed to capitalize? Exactly. On that? Is she is she just supposed to be like, nope, I'd rather be ugly or unmarketable <laughs> and not set myself up for, to become like? Would 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 you rather her do that? I mean, any anybody who was given basically the road that she was given would likely choose the one that leads to, leads to her being more comfortable. Question for you. Yeah. Uh, would you have retired right then? You put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, I'll, I'll, I'll answer first. Okay. I, I think we're, we're sports guys uh, and we love the sport of tennis. And I think if I were to be suspended for doping, there for me personally, I couldn't let that be the end. I have to come back a few more years to try to put that behind me. So I need to do something positive in the next, I don't know, two to three years to try to not let that be the stopping point of my legacy. I would have to keep playing a little bit more. It is a massive credit to her competitiveness and um, connection to the sport that she didn't do that. I don't know if I would say that Sharapova made herself a player, I like to say that's in the mix, but because of her name, she was always going to be a, a footnote or a mentionable on ESPN, on Tennis Channel or what have you. She did win a title. She did come back and win a title, and I'm pretty sure for 
reasons that we probably can't understand and it probably her team can understand most of those feelings probably means the most to her than other titles because of the stuff and the trials and tribulations she had to go through that were different yeah. than just injury related or different from just like losing and, and beating and, and overcoming the scarring of losing she was overcoming this this the 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 naysayers who said she didn't play well because of or she she played well because of said doping you know I, so I, I commend her for that i mean she did also make a we mentioned the the run at the u.s open she made a run to the quarterfinals of the french open in 2018 that one is a small asterisk because she was slated to play serena in the fourth round and serena pulled out pulled out i mean and i, I don't <laughs> Serena was not about to give her. Yes, that, Serena that, wasn't going to it. So she wasn't going <laughs> to give her an inch of the satisfaction. But they did meet again. They did meet again for the final time of their career in 2019, uh, the U.S. Open, which was pretty much a complete washout for Serena. But the way they hyped it up, and this oh was my like, God. it was it was hyped up just because we it kind of felt like it was going to be their last meeting, um, and just because of the the way that when you put their names next to each other, and we've, we've alluded to it just in this conversation, they're connected, right? Like, yeah. you, you can't, it, it, it's hard to have a conversation about Sharapova without mentioning Serena in some way, shape or form. And mm -hmm. in some in some regards, not, not maybe not as heavily as Sharapova, but you can't mention Serena without maybe explaining one of her ways of dominating the sport that she has is her head to head yeah. over Sharapova. That's like a, a clear mm -hmm. example of her being head and shoulders above her peers. You know, she announced her retirement in a, a article or essay to Vanity Fair in February of yeah. 2020, right when, you know, things were brewing about, you know, coronavirus and, you know, it, it making its way over to the U.S. And in March is where like the beginning of the pandemic kind of spreads or like the, where the, the chaos starts basically. And she was just like, Oh, <laughs> I'm out of here. And I mean, perfect timing. Just, you can't, you can't get better than that. The only thing is because of that timing, no one, even her, there was really no send off. Like if you remember yeah. Wozniacki, I'm pretty sure Wozniacki retired in 2020 as well. Um, but she was able to compete at the at the Australian Open where she had won her, her first and only Grand Slam. And there was pomp and circumstance associated with her retirement. Sharapova's, even though, I mean, I mean, a lot of people would kill to have Vanity, Vanity Fair even care about your retirement enough to let you write an essay and post it in Vanity Fair. It didn't have the same effect. It didn't, yeah. she, she may have gotten a YouTube video or a couple of greatest shot compilations from the U.S. Open or Wimbledon, but that is about it. And then here we are a, a, a year plus later and people still aren't kind of mentioning Sharapova. And I didn't, I didn't think that her career would be that way. I didn't, I didn't think that she would be a player, a former world number one, a, a multiple Grand Slam titleist that doesn't get mentioned and I think that is a little sad and kind of why I wanted to give her an episode about her because I feel like she's deserving you know yeah I, I I actually agree and we talked about this offline um that I personally think that she should have kept going uh it was 
sad to kind of see her walk away. And uh, eventually all of them have to walk away from the sport. But she didn't get the right send-off, I think, that she should have gotten. Uh, and you and I have talked a lot of, as to do with that of, of, because it was COVID, of just how she was perceived by other players on the court. But I think she, the tennis world, owes her a great deal of gratitude. I agree, because I don't think women's tennis, as far as it being the premier sport for women to be Mm -hmm. high-paid athletes, if you take Sharapova out of the equation, it does not have the appeal that it has. That's a a major contribution. If, If you take Sharapova out of the equation, there are a bunch of household name sponsors that would not even, they wouldn't have the idea of having a tennis athlete be the forefront of their brand without Sharapova yeah. being the poster child for that. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 I think there's a contribution there that um, yeah. tennis should be thankful for. Yes, there are some other things that happened that weren't so pretty, but the ability for players these days to have multi-million dollar contracts with and not even just not even just mentioning the apparel like be brand ambassadors she was probably the first brand ambassador before a brand ambassador became an actual definition she was an influencer before an influencer became something on yeah. Instagram you know um so yeah. the uh, athletes slash influencer they all owe her a great deal of of respect like the Eugenie Bouchards of the world mm-hmm would not have been a thing if Sharapova had not laid the the blueprint to be a brand and be an athlete. So I think she, Mm -hmm. I think she, she walked both of those lines as best as she could and was able to compete with the best of the best and bring home the best of the best trophies. Hey, you guys, I'm back. It's just miles. And I hope you enjoyed that. I really hope you did as I'm sitting here looking at, my audio go into my computer. I'm like wiping sweat off my brow because as I was editing this, <laughs> I was making a huge editorial mistake. And through trial and error and not getting too, too frustrated with myself and my error, I was able to fix it. So you guys could hear both conversations because at one point during this editing process, I've set aside for myself to do it was looking very grim. <laughs> so I am happy and thrilled that I got this episode to under an hour and a half, which was my goal. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. If you did, make sure you review it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I definitely appreciate that. For some reason, I'm getting notifications that the podcast is charting, like as far as tennis podcasts nationwide, which is crazy to me like i'm very thankful that you guys are listening and sharing and just doing things that i didn't expect to happen with this podcast (laughs) and i'm not going to go too deep because that's not what this is today share the podcast on your socials if you enjoyed it i challenge you to do that because the more people we share the more conversations we start and that's what i'm all about starting conversations and seeing where they go so without further ado i've rambled enough Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to keep up with the podcast on all socials. Like I've said before at missing point pod, there's going to be a lot going on. The French open is literally around the corner, which is partially why I'm even inspired to do this episode about sheriff over because she's a two time French open champion. Should have learned that in the episode. 
<laughs> Alright guys, that's a wrap for today's episode. Take care, love one another, be safe, and I will see you guys in the next show. Bye-bye.